Father, as we come to your word, we pray that you will hide your word in our hearts. Remember the words of the psalmist that says, I have hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. So, Father, we pray that in these next few moments, as we come to your holy scriptures, we pray that the power of the Holy Spirit, that you will plant your word deep in our hearts, that you will plant a deep-seated word in our hearts so that we may fear you, so that we know what it pleases you and what brings joy to you and to our lives, so that we will not sin against you. So, Father, as we look at this portion of Scripture from the book of Daniel this morning, we pray that you will take your words and plant it deep in our hearts. And, Father, we pray for the Holy Spirit to help us open our lives, our minds, and our hearts to your word. Because by human strength, your words will not penetrate. So we need your Holy Spirit to work. So, Father, we beseech you that your Holy Spirit will work in these next few moments as your word is being opened. In Jesus' name, Amen. It was the year AD 79, August 24th to be precise. Around 12 noon that afternoon, the, pe the people in the city of Pompeii saw a circle of cloud crowning the top of a mountain nearby. And many could see what seems like snowflakes falling down the sky. And a couple of hours later, they realized that those uh, snowflakes were actually ashes falling down from the sky. And they began to see pumice, which is volcanic rocks being fall with great acclamation at around 10 to, uh, 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 around 10 to 15 cm per hour. Eventually, the city of Pompeii was uh, layered with a thick layer of pumice, of volcanic rocks. By 5 o'clock in the afternoon, huge rocks were falling down the sky. And one of the roofs of the, in the city started collapsing. And the sky got darker and darker and there was dust and smoke that covered the sky. It got so dark that by 5 p.m. that afternoon, there was complete darkness across the city. Women started screaming, children started crying, while the men were shouting for their children and their, and their family members to get inside their homes. And some knew that the volcano just nearby was about to erupt, so there was a mad rush to the harbour. At this time, there was a Roman naval officer by the name of Pliny the Elder, who was not far from the city, where Pliny the Elder had just recently been rewarded and awarded by the Emperor, the Roman Emperor Vespasian, as one of the bravest uh, Roman officers. He was an experienced naval officer who had experienced the fiercest of storms, who had fought the most uh, terrifying battles. He was also a meticulous scientist who had a lot of knowledge about science. In fact, he was the first person to ever write the very first encyclopedia. When Pliny the Elder saw that there was a smoke, a circle of smoke above the mountain near the city of Pompeii, he knew that there was trouble. So he quickly got on his ship and got to the city. Got to the city. 
was trying to convince people to escape with him. He was trying to rescue the people from the city. And he finally got a group of people and they decided to head towards the harbour. But when they head towards the harbour, it was already very dark. And the winds were so strong that couldn't get on the ship. And, uh, and during this time, there were flames and smelled of sulfur everywhere. And while, uh, uh, while uh, uh, Pliny the Elder was trying to figure out what to do, while he was standing between two slaves, he suddenly collapsed because there was a dense fume, a poisonous gas coming from the eruption of the volcano nearby that was suffocating him. And so he collapsed and fell. Daylight finally returned on the 26th, two days later. But by this time, Pliny the Elder was already dead, buried under a layer of ashes. It was only in the year 1748, the city of Pompeii was excavated for the first time since the volcano eruption in 79 AD. And underneath the layer of dust and debris, the city of Pompeii was very much intact. In fact, the buildings, even the food and the skeletons of the human beings were all very much left behind and preserved. Pliny the Elder was the scientist of the Roman world. He was a valent naval officer, but yet he couldn't help the people of Pompeii face the eruption. Why? The volcanic eruption was far too powerful that no one, not even the brilliant Pliny the Elder, was of a match to its eruption. The volcanic gas was strong enough to kill Pliny the Elder. In life, there are circumstances and situations so formidable, so powerful, that sometimes even the most spiritually valent giant, spiritual giant, can be defeated. How, what do you do during these times when circumstances seem to be so strong and fierce, so powerful that it overwhelms us? What do you do in such situations? What do you do when your wife is so unforgiving that despite what you say or do, she's not willing to change her heart? What do you do when illness becomes so overwhelming that despite all the doctors you've seen, there seems to be no way out? What do you do when prayer seems like a fading flower in the midst of a thriving song that's about to uproot everything in your life? What do you do when you face such a volcano eruption that not even the most valent soldier could rescue you? This is what Daniel chapter 11, verses 36 to chapter 12, verse 4 is about. Daniel 11 and uh, chapter 11 and 12 are perhaps the most difficult chapters in the Bible. Firstly, the text itself is very, very long, and there are lots and lots of details. And it's easy to get lost in these verses, trying to figure out all the details. And secondly, these verses are highly, highly debated. You will hear all kinds of teachings on these two chapters. So what does Daniel chapter 11 and 12 about? Daniel 11 begins with the final vision of Daniel. Just like in Daniel chapters 2, 7 and 8, 
God shows Daniel that there are four successive kingdoms coming on the scene. Most scholars are in agreement of the identity of the first three kingdoms. They are Babylon, followed by the Persians, followed by Greece. It's the last kingdom, the fourth kingdom, that's of dispute. And uh, many people have written variously and, uh, and, uh, about uh, this uh, last kingdom. Those who belong to what's called the dispensational camp often see the last kingdom as the kingdom of the Antichrist and the second coming of Jesus. I am not a dispensationalist and I have problems with such a view because if you were to interpret the last kingdom as the Antichrist, and uh, so that means that the fourth kingdom in chapters 2, 7 and 8 should be the Antichrist? That becomes a little bit uh, of difficulty contextually, because contextually such a reading will not work. Moreover, we are told in chapter 11 that the kingdoms follow one after another. There is no break in the sequence of the kingdoms. So if we really think of the, the first three kingdoms as the kingdom of Babylon, Persia and Greece, then the next to come in line should be the kingdom of the Romans. The Bible doesn't say or doesn't even hint that, the, that you have to wait a few thousand years between the third kingdom and the fourth kingdom. So how can it be, the Antichrist, that you have to wait uh, a few thousand years from the kingdom of Greece to the Antichrist? At least the Bible does not indicate any of, uh, of waiting between the third and fourth kingdom. So textually, I don't think it works. So most of us who are not dispensational often see the fourth kingdom as either the kingdom of Greece or the kingdom of Rome. And I think the kingdom of Rome fits it nice, a little bit nicer because of the, of the, of the details that, is, that we're about to describe. So this makes sense because the fourth kingdom in chapters 2, 7 and 8 have all referred to the kingdom of Rome. So it's more natural to read it read the fourth kingdom as the kingdom of Rome. Also, the description of the fourth kingdom best described, uh, uh, described here in verses 35 to 36 to 45, best fit the historical uprising of Rome. My goal in this sermon is to look at this fourth kingdom from Daniel chapter 11, verses 36 to 45, and compare it with God's kingdom that's about to come. I want to raise two aspects, look at two aspects about this fourth kingdom. So I want to look firstly at the characteristics of this fourth kingdom. Let's look at verse 36. The king will do as he pleases, describing the king of the fourth kingdom. The king will do as he pleases. He will exalt and magnify himself above every god and will see unheard of things against the god of gods. He will be successful until the time of wrath is completed. For what has been determined must take place. We are told here in verse 36 that the king of the fourth kingdom is a very proud man. He sees himself as a god and is very boastful. This is indeed very true of the Roman emperors. All the Roman emperors since Augustus sees himself as a gods. Then we read in the two very unconventional characteristics of this kingdom. Verse 37, 
he, the king of the fourth kingdom, will show no regard for the gods of his ancestors. And this is very true about the Roman kingdom. The Roman kingdom was very much itself. It does not really bow its knees to the gods of their ancestors. And secondly, we are told that uh, he will show no regard for the one desired by women, nor will he regard any god, but will exalt himself above them all. What does this verse mean? He will not show any regard for the one desired by women. In order to understand this phrase, the one desired by women, we need to support, we need to imagine ourselves in the Roman Empire. Suppose you were a concubine or a queen in the king's harem in the Roman Empire. Who is the one that you will desire the most? Suppose you're one of the women among the king's wives and concubines. Who is your savior? Who is the one that you desire the most? Your prince, your own children. Suppose if your son is chosen by the king, then what happens to you? You will have good fortune down your pipe. You will become the queen mother and you will have prosperity and prestige coming your way. So the person that's desired by women is the prince. The prince, your son. But suppose if somebody else's son becomes the crown prince and later becomes the emperor, then you will be in trouble. Because you will, where will you be if another person's son becomes king? So in the ancient world, the many women in the king's harem always desire that their son will become the next king. But what is very interesting about the Roman Empire is that the Roman Empire had no regards and had very little regards for princes. Because if you look at the Roman Empire, the Roman emperors, especially from the Judeo-Claudian line, not one of the emperor was preceded by his natural son. In fact, only one uh, king, one emperor in the, in the Judeo-Claudian line was preceded only by his son. The rest of them just appointed whoever they wanted. They adopted anyone they wanted. They do whatever they please. So in this regard, the Roman Empire is different from all, all other empires. They treated themselves as God and they do not need sons to succeed them. Many of the other empires would have to, had, had to look up to other gods, had to had, uh, make sure that they have sons to, to come after them. But not the Roman Empire. They were different. They were gods in themselves. They had power in themselves. They do whatever they want. And they do not even have to have, have uh, natural sons in order to be successful as emperors. So in this sense, they were very much different from the different empires. So this is what is different. This is what is characteristics of this fourth empire. It's very different from the empires of the ancient world. And they see themselves as God and they don't even need children to be successful to run their empire. They can do anything they want as long as they get credit. And the Judean Claudian line, for instance, is a perfect example of this. They did whatever they want. The kings did not need children. They can adopt anyone to succeed them. They were very much a class of their own. It's a world in which everybody looks out for themselves 
as number one. This is the nature of the fourth kingdom. And this is very much a good reflection of our world today. Our world today, it's about me and myself. I don't need you. I don't need children. I can be on my own. I can call the shots myself. The Roman Empire is very much a reflection of our world. But that's not how God functions. And that's not how God's kingdom functions. In chapter 12, verse 1, God not, God is, God's kingdom is not about Himself, but God cares for us. Look at how God's kingdom is introduced in chapter 12, verse 1. At that time, Michael, the great prince who protects your people, will arise. God's kingdom is different. When God sees that His people were in danger, He sends His angel Michael to stand up, to arise and protect His people. God's kingdom is not just about himself, but God steps up even for the weak and for each one of us. Many times all we think about in our own little kingdoms is myself and how I profit and how I will survive and thrive. But God comes into our little kingdoms and challenges us. Maybe that's not what it's all about. There is a true story about a man and his wife. They were looking for a property to buy. Finally, they saw a piece of property. In fact, this is a true story. They, they found a piece of property to buy and they really loved the house. The house actually overlooks a cliff. It was in a very nice part of the suburb. It was very serene and quiet. So they bought the house. Within a few months, they heard through the grapevine that their house property actually was much lower than what they paid for. In fact, if they were to make a sale at the time, they would make a big loss. And they later realized why. Over the years, many depressed people will often come by their house because the house was facing a cliff. And many depressed people will jump down the cliff. And because of all these atrocities of people jumping down the cliff, the property value actually was very low. So when the man and his wife felt and realized that, they felt that they were duped and cheated. And they felt very bad for themselves. Oh no, we bought a house that's overpriced. But it was later then they thought to themselves and they think to themselves, why do we feel cheated? We only feel cheated if the purpose of our house is to serve us and our selfish needs and our financial security, our financial prosperity. If the house is just to serve us and our financial prosperity, of course we will feel cheated. But God did not give us this house so that we can elevate ourselves and our financial status and our financial equity. But God gave us this house so that we can turn it into ministry for the weak and for the poor. Since they knew that many people come by their house to jump off the cliff, what this couple in fact did was that they posted a sign just outside that gate that says, Life is precious. There is always a way out. Why don't you come in to have coffee with us? So they turned their house into a ministry for people who come desperate and about to jump down the cliff. But when they read a sign like that, come in and have coffee with us. 
was a way to show these depressed people that there is someone who will stand up for them and willing to talk to them. The world is very much like this fourth kingdom, selfish, looking out for themselves, trying to be independent. I don't even need children to be successful as the Roman Empire would boast, but not God's kingdom. God's kingdom but standing up, even for the lonely. Secondly, I want to examine not only the characteristic of this fourth kingdom, but I want to look at the secret weapons of this fourth kingdom. Because this fourth kingdom is unlike the other three kingdoms that Daniel has just described. This fourth kingdom had two secret arsenals, two secret weapons, and this will make them great and powerful and evil. What are these two weapons? Let's look at verse 20, 38. Instead of them, he will honor a god of fortresses, a god known to his ancestors. He will honor with gold and silver and precious stones and costly gifts. He will attack the mightiest fortresses with the help of foreign gods and is greatly honored and will greatly honor those who acknowledged him. The very first arsenal of this fourth kingdom that makes it so powerful is that it has a new God. Its God is not the God of their ancestors, but it's the God of the fortresses, the God of war. This fits the Roman Empire perfectly. What, what distinguishes the Roman Empire is that it was a nation, it was an empire of war. The Roman Empire did uh, 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 was so powerful because it was it excelled in warfare. Uh, one of the ways in which it excels in warfare was building highways and roads. Many of the ancient empires failed because they were trying to govern a huge piece of empire, but they couldn't get to different places in their empire in time when there was a rebellion. And the Roman Empire knew this well and knew that they need to get to to every edge of the empire as quickly as possible. So if there is a rebellion, they could quelch it. So what did they do? They designed highways and roads. There, are 300, there were 372 roads and 29 highways that emerged out of the city of Rome so that the Romans could get to every aspect of their empire very quickly through these highways and roads. And so they were great at warfare. They could march out very quickly. If there is a rebellion, they could march out very quickly in droves and quickly quench any rebellion. And one of the other things in which the Roman Empire was great at warfare is that they were great at inventing weaponry that's never been heard of. They were great in um, inventing weapons such as the pilium, the plumbata, is another weaponry being the, designed by the Romans. And the Romans were also very great at surgery of soldiers that were wounded in, in, in battle. Instead of letting them die on the battlefront or carrying them back to the city to be nursed, they were great in nursing the wounded soldiers right at the battlefield. 
so that they could recover quicker. They were great in warfare. And here the Bible describes them beautifully. They were people who looked to a new God, the God of fortresses, the God of warfare. And this is one of the secret weapons. But they have a second arsenary um, that, uh, that um, the Romans had. What is it? Verse 39. He will make them rulers over many people and will distribute the land at the price. The Roman Empire developed what is often called the patron-client system. The Roman Empire had learned from previous empires that not everyone that they have conquered will remain loyal to them. The previous empires all know this lesson. Once you have conquered a piece of land, it doesn't mean that the people of the land will be loyal to you 10 years down the road. So how do you get the people in the land to be loyal to you? The Romans invented what is called a client patronage system. And what, what is that about? Verse 39 actually tells us, He makes rulers over many people and distribute land at a price. What the Romans did was that they would parcel out different parts of the empire to local rulers. For instance, one of the clients of the Roman Empire was King Herod. King Herod was the guy who wanted to kill baby Jesus when Jesus was born. Herod was in fact a client of the Roman Empire. He was uh, to work for the Roman Empire and he got the prestige of being king over Judea. But in return, being a client of the Roman Empire, he had to help Rome build loyalty from the people towards Rome. So one of the great things that King Herod did, what was he, what did he do? He began to build a lot of Roman architecture to remind the people that they need to be loyal to Rome. And he helped Rome collect taxation from the people. In return, Rome gave him land to rule. Just like verse 39 says, he gave them land, make them rulers and distribute land to them at a price. So he, so Rome was very clever as a great arsenal to not only get people to, to defeat, to defeat is their enemies, but also to get their enemies to be subjected to them with loyalty. This is a perfect system. And these are two perfect arsenals to govern the world and makes the fourth kingdom invincible. How could you even top that? So this fourth kingdom, as Daniel sees in this vision, becomes a very uh, overwhelming empire. It was not only great in its administration, but was great in its, in its ability to get people to be loyal to them. This was an overwhelming empire. How could God ever top that? But God can. Rome had two arsenals, two secret weapons. God has one. And God's secret weapon is going to overwhelm us. It's going to be something that will cause our skin to rise, our, our uh, uh, skin to crawl. What is God's secret weapon? If you think Rome's secret weapons were smart, God's secret weapon is 
off the wall crazy. What is God's secret weapon? God will bring in his kingdom. His kingdom will overpower the kingdom of Rome. And how will God overpower the kingdom of Rome? Verse, verse 1 of chapter 12. There will be the time of distress, such as had not happened from the beginning of the nations until now. But the time your people, everyone with whose name is found written in the book will be delivered. Multitudes of multitudes who sleep in the dust of the earth will wake, some to everlasting life, others to shame and everlasting contempt. Those who are wise will shine like the brightness of heavens, and those who lead many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. God is here saying, and God's strategy is this, Rome can be great in trying to get people to follow them and to quench rebellion. But God's secret weapon is this. It doesn't matter. Even those who died and have, have died and, uh, uh, and have perished do not even worry. God's secret weapon is this. They will one day be resurrected. Some will be resurrected to everlasting life and some will be resurrected to everlasting contempt. This is downright crazy. What is God saying here? Don't fear this fourth kingdom. They may win many wars, but they will lose when it comes to the final and the most important war, and that is death. Even the final and the fourth kingdom, as powerful as it is, will also die, and they will die. But I have a secret weapon, God says. My secret weapon is that I will raise even the dead and they will come to life. Verse 2, multitudes who sleep in the dust will awake, some to everlasting life and others to shame and everlasting contempt. God can raise a kingdom even after death and they will live forever and they'll be resurrected like stars forever and ever. This is crazy. But we have been expecting this all along in the book of Daniel, haven't we? Daniel speaks about Daniel's friends being thrown into the furnace and they did not die. Daniel uh, chapter 6 speaks about Daniel being thrown into the lion's den and Daniel survived. And here God ups the ante by telling us that even if you perish under the swath kingdom, God's kingdom will still prevail and succeed because even if you die, God will raise you up from the dead and there will be everlasting life. This is revolutionary in the Old Testament. I mean, in the Old Testament, we do get hints of the resurrection from the dead. From Psalm 16, Psalm 49, Psalm 73, Job chapter 19, verses 25 to 27, Isaiah 25, Ezekiel 37, all do hint of the resurrection. But this verse, these verses here in chapter 12, are the clearest verses that speak of the resurrection. And no other verse in the Old Testament speaks as clearly about the resurrection of the dead than this. What does this mean to us? Three take-home points. Firstly, don't be afraid if people or circumstances seem to be overwhelming. When you face your volcano eruption, if you feel that there is nobody who can ever save you, do not be afraid. They are not eternal. Only God is eternal. The worst of all situations will pass. 
but God's kingdom will not pass. So the first lesson we can take out of this, don't be afraid when you're overwhelmed. Secondly, God can raise the dead. Listen slowly and carefully. Even if you and I die, God will and can resurrect us. There is nothing too difficult for him. He can call a dead man and the dead man will rise and we will rise again. So secondly, believe in God. God can raise the dead. Thirdly, we shouldn't be afraid of death when we have Jesus on our side. When we have Jesus as the resurrection of life with us. So even when you face the most overwhelming circumstances, even if you have to die, don't be afraid. Jesus is an expert in one thing, raising the dead. And this is what makes God's kingdom even more powerful than the fourth kingdom. The fourth kingdom is powerful. It's, uh, it covers a lot of grounds that most uh, empires previously could not. But God's kingdom is far greater. Becky, true story, lost her nine-year-old son to cancer. She remembered the year before her daughter Cammy died. Just a year before Cammy died, Becky and his daughter Cammy went to a florist where they bought a lily in a pot. Cammy said to Cammy, the nine-year-old daughter, said to her mom, "When the blossoms die, mom, can you plant it outside?" That's exactly what the lady at the florist said. Says that it will come back again the next year. So she gave Cammy, the nine-year-old, gave the pot of lily to her mom as Mother's Day's present. Becky told her daughter that she did not believe that the lily would come back. But mom, the lady in the florist shop said it would. So when the flowers fade and die, Cammy kept reminding her mom to plant the lily outside. But Becky, because of work, because of taking care of Cammy, because of uh, being a mom, she didn't really have time and she didn't really believe that, that the lily would come back to life. But after being persisted on by the daughter, she finally relented and planted the lily in the backyard. Winter came that year and Cammy died of cancer that winter. Becky, the mom's world, became dark became so overwhelming that she felt that she was facing a huge volcano eruption and there was no one to save her. Not even the most valiant men and soldier could erase her from her depression. And the following spring, she went back to their backyard to have a look. And there and behold, the lily that she planted sprouted and produced 27 fragrant pink blossom. And Becky began to be filled with this inexpressible joy, joy even in the darkness. How could this be? She asked herself. Even without a child, she couldn't believe that she could feel such joy and happiness again. 
And what a beautiful gift that Cammy, her daughter, her nine-year-old daughter, an innocent child, had given her. And she had no problem believing that the lily would live again. And that lily blossom just meant so much to her. And I think that's what Jesus is saying to us. When we feel that our circumstances overwhelmed us, plant yourself in Jesus. Lay yourself down at His feet and let Him take over. Die to Him and watch Him work. He can take what's dead and bring it to life again. Daniel ends in such a powerful, powerful note that all the kingdoms of the world, regardless of how great they were, could not accomplish. And that is life. Out of death. And that's what's so unique about God's kingdom compared to the Romans, compared to the, to, to the other other kingdoms. It doesn't matter. God's kingdom is so much greater. Because even out of death, there can be joy. There can be life. Plant yourself in Jesus today. Father, we come before you this morning and we pour our hearts before you. Father, we thank you that you have spoken. Though this is a very difficult passage and I pray, Father, that you allow this message to make sense to your people. That your Holy Spirit will allow this message to sink in. But Father, we thank you that your kingdom is far different from the kingdoms of this world. As great as all these kingdoms are, they do not match your greatness. So Father, again, we come before you and say, Father, Father, I am overwhelmed. It feels like there is nobody who can ever help me. So Father, I come to you and fall again at the feet of Jesus and say, Father, even if I die, I will still be joyous because you will resurrect me again. Father, we thank you that you have shown Daniel and to us your power that far exceeds the powers of the kings of this world. Yes, Lord. We thank you that even in the Old Testament, we have such great promise that the dead one day will be resurrected. That we have such clear promise without a doubt of this great doctrine, even here in the Old Testament. And confirmed and beautifully expounded and and shown to us through his example in the New Testament. That you are indeed, that your son indeed is the resurrection and the life. So, Father, thank you. Thank you that you are greater than the kingdoms of this world. In Jesus' name.